All right, so I want to start today by saying thank you. Um, it's been a rough 10 days at the Doe House. Uh, Marcy had surgery, she's recovering, everything went well. Um, I want to say thank you because just the amount of love and support we felt from everyone in this community, uh, we realized that the culinary game is strong in this church. And I was talking to my kids about it because we had a lot of different meals, and I was like, what was your favorite meal this week? And um, they, unanimously, they were like, the pancakes. I was like, the pancakes? And uh, what happened was George Churchfield dropped off about 100 pancakes in a bin like the first day Marcy got home from the hospital. And I was like, that's a lot of pancakes. Um, and the children figured out that every morning they would put the pancakes in the toaster. And have you ever done this before? Like, it was, compl- it was like a life-changing revelation. Like, you just, you put the pancakes in the toaster. We had pancakes all week long. And so, like, my mom checked in. She's like, how are things going? I'm like, good, we're eating pancakes every morning. I've got it all under control. Um, so, yes, it was a, 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 a challenging week, but we're, we're grateful for just your, your prayers um, and uh, have felt very loved by everyone. So thank you very much. Back to the sermon. Mark chapter 6. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for the last 14 weeks, and we're going to continue to do that. And as we bring uh, th- this church into, to become one church, we just wanted to ground ourselves in the story of, of Jesus. And uh, the, the story that we, we are in today, um, there's actually a, a story in the Old Testament that reminds me of this story. Um, it's an ancient story uh, about Moses. And this story takes place uh, something like over 3,500 years ago. And Moses has... You led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're out kind of in the wilderness, camped out at Mount Sinai, and he's waiting to hear from the Lord, trying to figure out what to do next. And they have this conversation. He goes up, Moses goes up onto the mountain, and he's talking to God. And he's like, okay, what do I do? What's next? Um, you know, where, where do we go from here? And as they're having this conversation, Moses realizes, like, I'm, I'm like following you, God, and I don't even know what you look like. I don't even, like, you know, you say you know my name and you know me, but God, I don't even know what you look like. And so God says, okay, I'll reveal myself to you. And there's this mysterious passage about how the presence of God passes by Moses. And in this story, God says, you're going to see my glory and my goodness, but it's so overwhelming that if anyone sees my face, they won't live. That's how overwhelming my presence is. But here's what we'll do. We're up on this cliff. I'm going to put you into the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to cover the rock, and I will pass by, and you can see the the back of me when I pass by. It's this really strange, mysterious story. We're trying to understand like what Moses experiences, but as, as the presence of God passes by, it says the goodness of God passes by him. And we know that at the end of this story, when Moses finally comes down from the mountain, his face is like glowing because he has seen the presence of God. The story in Mark that we're, we're looking at today, the presence of God in Jesus passes by the disciples. And as I was reading this story in Mark, I kept thinking, man, that sure sounds like Moses. 
And as I was reading through the story, I, I, there were like three or four little details where I'm like, wow, that sure sounds like Moses. And you start to realize there are these connections between this gospel author who's telling the story of Jesus, and he's retelling this old story of the Exodus. And he's making sense of this old story by this new covenant that is now in Jesus. And what Mark wants us to know is the more that we understand Moses, the more we're going to understand Jesus. For the people who are encountering Jesus, his living presence, the disciples, they know everything about their religious experience goes back to this guy Moses. Moses is the leader, he's the prophet, he's the one that has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is the one that has put together the, the scripture, the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament, which, which sets the pace for their religious life. Everything goes back to Moses is a central figure. And Mark is doing something here as he tells the story about Jesus that connects us with this figure of Moses. Real quick, when you... Think about some of the the big highlights of Moses' life, and you go through Exodus. There's a number of things that I think are set up here that we see in the Gospels. The first, you know, Moses, uh, he's he's born into Egypt in Exodus chapter 1, and the Pharaoh is worried about his people. They're growing in number, so he puts out this decree to have all of the young boys thrown into the Nile. This is how Moses' life starts. Uh, And so Moses' mom puts Moses in a basket and floats him down the Nile. But there's this strange like, connection, like when Jesus is born and King Herod is worried about this king being born, King Herod puts out this decree to murder all the boys because he's afraid of this king that's supposed to arise with Jesus. And when we know Jesus flees with his family to Egypt. Moses is here in Egypt. And as he floats down the river, uh, it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter finds him, finds that there's this baby that's been, been abandoned and she adopts him. So, so Moses grows up with this royalty in this household of royalty. Moses' story, if, if you remember, he ends up uh, murdering someone. He takes justice into his own hands. And so then he has to flee from Egypt. He has to get away. As he runs away, he's in the wilderness and starts this new life. And, um, and, and as he's you know, becoming a shepherd, he goes up onto this mountain, the mountain of Horeb, Horeb the mountain of the Lord. And God appears to him in a burning bush on this mountain. Moses asks about the identity of God, and that's where we get this name of God, where God says, I am. I am. Moses is then given this mission to deliver his people. He goes back to Egypt. We know that, you know, the Charlton Heston movie is so great about the, the plagues that come, right? And and they have this, Moses gets into it with Pharaoh, and eventually what happens is they're, they're able to go free, and they come out of Egypt, and they're camped out at the Red Sea, and what happens, the Egyptian army comes after them, and, and then God delivers the people through Moses, and they, they part the Red Sea, and they walk through the water to get to the other side. The, the Red Sea collapses. They're free from the Egyptians. Once they get out into the wilderness, they're, they're wandering around, and this is where that story starts. They go to Sinai, and Moses is given words from God, the commandments, the law, the Torah. This is what will shape and guide their religious experiences, covenant language that they have with God. In that moment, 
God passes by Moses, the glory of God passes by Moses. They're starving in the wilderness. Moses prays to God and he sends bread, manna, for the 12 tribes. And Moses leads them to this earthly promised land. It's a quick little summary of Moses through Exodus, right? But it's so key to understand these big themes in the life of Moses and the people of Israel because when we get to this story, Mark is trying to communicate something to us about the identity of Jesus. And this story in Mark picks up where Tyler left off last week. If you were here, the sermon of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus doing another miracle where he's meeting the needs. Mark has been all about these actions of Jesus. We, we see him where he's healing sick people. He's raising the dead, Jairus' daughter. He's driving out demons. Mark 6 opens with him going back to his hometown and he's rejected. They go out to this other side of this lake and this group of 5,000 people gather. 5,000 men, who knows how many more women. They don't have food and Jesus does this incredible miracle where he feeds all of these people with bread. And this is where this story starts. Verse 45 of Mark 6 says, Immediately, which means right after this story, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So this word immediately connects us with this story of feeding the 5,000. And so as this miracle is finishing and there's this huge crowd gathered, it tells us that he right away tells the disciples to get back into the boat and to cross the lake immediately. There's an urgency here where Jesus is like, get out of here. As John tells this story, we might get a hint of what this urgency is. At the end of the story in John, it says this in John 6, 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is, yet to, who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why does he tell the disciples to, to get out of the scene, to get back into the boat, and to go immediately? Because this crowd is ready to make him king. And they have an agenda for him to start this revolution. And they're ready to fight. They're ready to do whatever they can. And they want Jesus to be king. And what we find is he sends the disciples away, and then he himself retreats. Verse 46, it says, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. He goes to this solitary place, and he prays and meets with God. Verse 47 says, later that night, so that very night, the boat that the disciples hopped on was in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. There's a sight to see. It says that he sees them in their distress. Like they're trying to row across the lake. There's this headwind that hits them and they're straining against the oars. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. Let's not miss that detail. Walking on the lake. 
he was about to pass them by. That's interesting. He sees that they're in distress, and he's like, they look grumpy, right? He just, I don't know what he's thinking, but it says he's, he's about to just bypass them. Verse 49 says, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified because he was walking on the lake. Can you imagine that? This is immediately he spoke to them. Take courage. It is I. Another translation says, I am he. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Some revealing details in this story. And there's a lot of details in this story, and there's a lot of lessons we can learn from this story. But as we look through the details of the story, um, I want to point out what's missing like, if you've heard this story before and you grew up going to Sunday school with flannel graph, like, this is a famous story. But if you've grown up around it, you were probably thinking, like, wait, isn't this the story where, like, Jesus walks on water and then who, who else tries to walk on water? Peter. Yeah, Peter. He, yeah, he tries to walk on water. That's the same story, right? Yeah, this is the same story. It's interesting that that detail is not in here. It's also interesting because as we've talked about the gospel of Mark, this is Peter's gospel. Like Peter is telling Mark what happened and Mark is like the scribe that's writing down this story. And it just so happens that Peter's like, let's not put that detail in there. <laughs> like I could just imagine Peter later in life, he's got a beard, he's sitting by the fire smoking a pipe and he's like, now that I think about it, the part about me sinking, let's take that out, right? Like, that doesn't need to be in there. Like, it's not in this story, and this is Peter's story. I'm sure Mark was like, well, Matthew is putting that detail into this story. Peter's like, nah, he's a tax collector. No one's going to listen to his story, right? I, whatever happens here, this is a pretty important detail, and Peter leaves it out. Now, Peter doesn't leave out the things that he's ashamed of. In fact, we, we know that Peter denies Jesus three times, and he leaves that in. So I don't think Peter's leaving that detail out of the story. But I think when Peter's telling this story, he knows you know, that, that detail has, actually has a pretty redemptive element to it. There's a humility here, I think, as Peter tells this story. Like, I don't want this story to be about me. I want this story to be about Jesus. Because as we're telling this gospel story, we want Jesus to be the center, and we want, there, there's something else here that's more important that I don't want people to get caught up on the detail of me. This is me just assuming what Peter's thinking. Because Mark keeps asking the question in his gospel, who is Jesus? And all of this is pointing towards the answer. And Mark wants us to wrestle with this, who is Jesus? What does Mark want us to know about Jesus? Mark's very intentional with how he tells this story. Well, the reason it reminded me of Moses is this little line. When the disciples are out in the boat straining against the oars, it says, the presence of Jesus passes by them. 
And there actually wasn't an intent to stop until they cry out. And then that presence of Jesus, the presence of God stops and it gets in the boat. They're able to see the face of God. Something Moses, he was not able to do because God so, the glory would just, it would end his life in that moment. But there's something about Jesus now that we, the presence of God passes by us and we can see who God is, what God is like. Jesus is the revelation of God. We start to think about the details of this story and what they're telling us about Jesus and Moses. This Moses, this great leader who delivered us from the things that enslaved us, the Egyptians. Jesus is now doing something as well. The story starts with Jesus meeting on a mountain. Similar to think about the, the contrast, the comparison of these two. Moses, his story meets God on a mountain. Jesus meets God on a mountain. Moses on that mountain asks about the identity of God, and God says, I am. Jesus speaks to us the identity. He says, I am he. Moses has given this mission to deliver his people. Jesus has given this mission to deliver his people. Moses walks through water. Jesus walks on the water. Moses has given uh, God's words for his people. Jesus speaks God's words for his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. We think about the, the law, the Torah that, that Moses gives us. You know, it tells us what to do with someone who has leprosy. Jesus heals people who have leprosy. The words Moses gives us tells us what to do when someone dies. Jesus is raising the dead. There's this fulfillment in the words that we have in the life of Jesus. God passes Moses by. Jesus passes by the disciples here as this representation of the presence of God. How does this story start? Jesus creating and providing bread for 5,000 people. Moses in the wilderness cries out to God and he sends manna. He sends bread to the 12 tribes of Israel. As Tyler pointed out last week, when when God feeds the 5,000, there's 12 bread, 12 baskets of bread. I almost said pancakes. 12 baskets of bread left over. Moses takes the people to this earthly promised land, and Jesus is taking us to this eternal promised land. Mark's telling the story of Jesus, his presence passing over the water. It would have also been this echo of these old and ancient words, maybe some of the most ancient words in Scripture, found in Job chapter 9. It says this, God alone stretches out the heavens and walks on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the constellations. God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, and when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. You hear this echo of this hope of the Old Testament. The presence of God now passes by the disciples. And it's the face of Jesus. Jesus sees the disciples in their distress. He just about passes them by, but they call to him, and he pursues them in the midst of this storm. 
Jesus pursues us in the midst of our distress. And Jesus' presence, when he gets into the boat, calms the storm. On Mount Sinai, when Moses is trying to figure out who this God is, what's going on, Moses, here's what he says. He goes, all I know, God, is when we leave this place, we don't want to go unless your presence goes with us. Your presence has to be with us. And here in the story we find, as the presence of Jesus enters into this boat, the storm goes away. The presence calms the storm. Jesus pursues the disciples, and his presence calms the storm. Here's how the story ends in Mark chapter 6. Verse 53, it says, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region, and they carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever they went into villages, towns, and the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. The story ends with another group of people that encounter the presence of Jesus, and they recognize him right away. And they come to him with all of their needs and all of their hopes and all of the things that they're distressed about. And you might say that this story is actually setting up two types of responses to the presence of Jesus in the world. And it just so happens that the disciples might be in the wrong category. Because there's two responses, there's two postures of the heart. And it tells us that the disciples' heart, their hearts are hardened. They can't understand why what is going on in the midst of these circumstances that they are distressed by. I mean, who knows? They probably didn't want to leave the lake with that crowd of 5,000. Like, Jesus, we got momentum. We got influence. This This is heading somewhere. Jesus says, get in the boat and go. I wonder if they had a little bit of FOMO at that moment. And then they get in the boat and they're like straining against the oars. Like Jesus, I can't believe he asked us to do this. We're not getting anywhere. They're frustrated. I mean, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people and they don't understand what's going on. They're not like making these connections with Moses that I can do with, you know, a bunch of commentaries, you know. But it says that they don't understand because their hearts are hardened. And there's something very ominous there about how you could, you could, you could hang with Jesus. You could be a disciple. You could spend time with him. You could even experience his goodness and miracles. And you could miss it all. Your heart could be hardened towards the work that God is doing whether, whether that's through other people, whether that's what God's doing in your midst, it says their hearts are hardened. This is where I often find myself in response to Jesus, because I have an agenda for him. He doesn't do what I want. He tells me to go somewhere I don't want to go. Then I get there, and I'm not getting the results I want, and I'm frustrated, and I'm caught up with my circumstances, and I'm caught up with the things that distress me. And I find myself just hardened 
in my heart towards God. Then you have this group of people when he shows up on the shore and they recognize him and they run to him and they're desperate. They have an expectant heart. It is full of hope. There's this desire for God to intervene. They didn't see the 5,000 be fed. They didn't see Jesus walk across the water. All they know is that they are in need of help. And they receive Christ. Two postures. To have a hardened heart. To have a heart that is expectant and hopeful. As we know, the disciples, this is part of their process of, of the softening of their heart. And really, it's interesting, like with, with Mark, is from here out, it, it becomes a really challenging story for the disciples. But then we know where that's headed post-resurrection, what they give their lives to. But we're all faced with this question, who is Jesus, and how do I receive him? And what the Gospel of Mark is telling us is that Jesus Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He's greater than Moses. He's everything that Moses has been pointing us to. He is the Messiah. How are you going to respond? We're going to spend some time today closing with a sacred act that represents God's presence, the incarnation, him coming to earth. And it represents his presence in our life. We take communion, the elements, the Eucharist. And today as we move to this time of this sacred act, we invite you to the table. Wherever your heart is at, we want to invite you today to the table. And maybe you need to come with a heart that just says, I have been closed off. It is hard. My heart is bitter. And it's a time of, of saying, God, would you just soften my heart? Maybe it's a, a, a time of repentance of saying, I need to, to return. Or maybe today you come with a hopeful heart, but you're in just this place of desperation. You got things that are sick, that feel like they're dying. And you need to come to the feet of Jesus and say, I need help. We invite you to the table today to receive. We invite you to open your heart to the presence of Jesus. Eugene Peterson has these wonderful words about this act of communion and dealing with uh, people who have been in relationship with, with Jesus and yet still find that we can have hard hearts, religious people, us church people. And he says these words, and I, I think they're, they're good to, to consider as we head to the table. It says, he says this in his book, Living the Resurrection. Jesus breaks what we bring to him. All too often, we come to the table with our best manners and oppose of impenetrable self-sufficiency. We're all surface, all roll, polished, poised performers in the game of life. But Jesus is after what is within. 
and he exposes the insides of our inadequacies. At the table, we're not permitted to be self-enclosed. We're not permitted to remain self-sufficient. We are taken into the crucifixion. We dramatize it as we eat the common food. The breaking of our pride and self-approval opens us up to new life, to new action. Everything on the table represents some kind of exchange of life, some sacrifice to our host. And if we come crusted over, hardened within ourselves, in lies and poses, he breaks through and brings new life. A broken and contrite heart of God. Thou wilt not despise, as the psalmist reminds us. We discover this breaking first in Jesus. Jesus was broken. His blood poured out. And now we discover it in ourselves. Then Jesus gives us back what we brought to him, who we are. But it is no longer what we brought. Who we are, the self that we offer to him at the table, is changed into what God gives. What we sing of as amazing grace. This is all about grace. And today we come to the table to receive. And we invite you with a heart that opens up that says, God, come in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, for these old stories, Lord, that are so brilliantly written, so divinely inspired, that teach us who you are and what you're up to. This old story, Lord, where you walk on water, your spirit passes by the disciples. But not in a way that just overwhelms, but in a way that, that meets us in the boat. And your presence brings about peace. Lord, I just ask you that your spirit would pass through this room, through us. That we would experience you Lord, as we go to this table and we're reminded of your love for us, Lord, we ask that you would soften our heart, that you would meet our needs. We give you this time. Amen.